Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. From Gizmodo, we've got the news that lab-grown fish sticks are one step closer to your dinner plate. And yes, to be clear, that is a fish stick, in case you were thinking of calling me out on that South Park episode. Nice try. (laughs) (laughs) A company called Blue Seafood, and that's B-L-U-U, they've revealed two finished food products made of fish cells but without the fish. Yeah. See, I don't like regular fish sticks, so I don't think I'm going to eat fake (laughs) fish sticks. (laughs) Well, I do, and I am super (laughs) stoked. So Blue Seafood, which is a German company, has unveiled its first two finished lab-grown seafood products. We've got fish sticks and fish balls, according to a report from TechCrunch. The reveal comes less than three years after the company was founded, which seems kind of quick, and is another step forward for a possibly more sustainable seafood future. So how do they make them? They collect tissue via biopsy from a fish, and then cultures duplicate the cells in a bioreactor fed with, quote, a nutrient-rich medium. Mm-mm. Mm. The cells are then grown on a scaffolding surface, which is meant to mimic the structure of fish flesh, according to the company's website. So now I'm thinking of like Nightmare on Elm Street, racks of like floor to ceiling. Anyway, <laughs> like window washer scaffolding, yeah. but made of fish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just growing on the walls is what I'm seeing in my brain. But part of the reason is because the fishing industry has tons of of environmental downsides, if you were not aware. Companies say they're hoping to address problems like overfishing and marine pollution, because right now about 90% of the world's ocean fisheries are considered at max sustainable capacity or mm. even overfished, according to the United Nations. And as we watch climate change dump all over us, marine life is becoming even more vulnerable. So to stay sustainable and avoid further ecological collapse, we do need to harvest less seafood. That being said, the process of cultured seafood is not itself without potential environmental pitfalls. Sure. So the growth medium that companies like Blue Seafood use are usually derived from agricultural products like grains. And grains, of course, take a lot of land to produce. But whether or not lab-grown meat product can even scale up to make a dent in the world's appetite for flesh? (laughs) Kind of an open question, right? I mean, no cultivated meat company has yet reached profitability selling Mm. the product on the market. I mean, only one company is actually approved to sell cultured meat to the public and only in one place. And we've talked about them before. This is Good Meat, who got the regulatory green light in Singapore in 2020. And Singapore is the only nation on earth to currently allow the sale of cultured meat as a consumer food product. So Blue is going to seek approval for its new fish bits there first. And then if they're successful, they're going to try the same in the U.S., European Union and U.K. Of course, after approval, we've got to do market testing and the company then would have to scale up production 
So we're still a little bit away from being able to just go into our HEB and pick it off the frozen aisle. But 2025, that's looking kind of realistic, barring, you know, Right, right, of everything. (laughs) Of everything. I mean, I'm kind of curious about the allergy implications of it. Because, like, if you're scaffolding this fish meat on grains, does that mean somebody who's allergic to wheat is not going to be able to eat it? Like, what level of grain remains in there? I don't know. Like, I feel like there's already so many problems with our food supply. And this is Mm -hmm. a different fake thing. But like, (laughs) I don't know. It just solves one problem, but creates another. You're right. I think that gluten-free moniker might actually have a lot of heavy lifting to do on a product like this. Yeah. Well, I wasn't going to eat them anyway, so it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Next link. Next Next link. link. This article comes to us from thewalrus.ca and it's titled Fighting AI with AI, the (gasps) Battle Against Deep Fakes. Ooh, AI fight. I'm picturing like rock'em sock'em robots. Like that's (laughs) immediately what I picture. (laughs) So nearly a decade ago, Ian Goodfellow, then a PhD candidate at Université de Montréal, was drinking with friends in Montreal's downtown when he conceived an idea that would change machine learning and the world of disinformation forever. Goodfellow suspected that pitting two computer systems against each other, called Generative Adversarial Networks, or GANs, would yield more realistic outputs than the deep learning machines that existed at the time. GANs use two competing algorithms that train themselves on a dataset, for example, photos of faces. At first, both programs are weak, but as the algorithms duel each other, the images become more and more convincing. ThisPersonDoesNotExist.com is an example of how GANs can quickly produce an army of headshots of people who aren't real. Mm-hmm. As artificial intelligence tools become more sophisticated, manipulated media, including deepfakes, have become more challenging to detect, especially amid the sheer volume of them surfacing online. According to a 2021 report by the World Economic Forum, the number of deepfake videos has increased by an estimated 900% annually, and they've reached a point where people like Bendixson are able to teach themselves how to make them just by watching YouTube videos. But now, in an attempt to ease the disinformation crisis, researchers are finding new ways to help audiences distinguish the real from the fake. For the three months between 2019 and 2020, Facebook, now Meta, co-hosted the Deepfake Detection Challenge, asking participants to automate the process of determining if a photo has been manipulated with artificial intelligence. The competition drew 2,114 participants and awarded 1 million US dollars in prizes to the entries with the most successful algorithms. Hmm. But even with some of the sharpest minds in artificial intelligence working with ample motivation, the best program was able to detect deepfakes only 65% of the time. Currently, most artificial intelligence-based detection programs search for visual artifacts, imperfections like lighting inconsistencies, odd shadow placement, and geometric disagreements to identify where an image could be manipulated. But due to the evolving nature of artificial intelligence, these programs can quickly learn how to cover their own tracks. Like when a 2018 university at Albany study found that fake people tend to blink either more or less than real people in videos, and one year later, researchers in South Korea noted that deepfakes were developing more realistic blinking patterns. Hmm. As experts highlight these errors, they also inadvertently provide deepfake creators a step-by-step guide to creating a more deceptive image. Andy Parsons, the senior director of the Content Authenticity Initiative at Adobe, who works to develop tools that help combat the rise of disinformation, says it won't be a viable solution forever. If we zoom out, what does the 5 or 10 year horizon look like for detection, he says. I think it's a losing battle. 
for lack no. of a better term, <laughs> the bad guys are probably going to win that one. Oh, come uh -huh. on. Jane Litvinenko, who works on the Media Manipulation Casebook, a resource aimed at journalists and researchers that documents misinformation and disinformation, says the bigger concern is cheap fakes, which are photos and video edited without artificial intelligence. Mm. According to Litvinenko, aptly named cheap fakes, which use cut and paste, slowed down audio, and spliced video, provide deceivers an affordable and effective way to create manipulated media. In a video titled, Is She Drunk? Exclamation mark, question mark, exclamation mark, question mark. Nancy Pelosi fumbles words, struggles through press conference, that's all the title, <laughs> posted oh, wow. by a YouTube channel known for touting right-wing conspiracies, Pelosi is shown seemingly slurring her words. Aye. The video deploys old-school methods of trickery by slowing down the speed to give the impression her speech was impaired. Despite the fact that the video was later deemed faked, it was still shared widely and remains up on the platform. Ugh. Litvinenko said, People get misinformed by simpler tactics than deepfakes, so there's not much of an incentive right now to deploy complex approaches. Hmm. But a new solution called Content Providence could offer a better way to adapt to the evolving world of misinformation. With a name borrowed from the art world, this initiative seeks to establish a chain of providence that documents what happened to an image throughout the entirety of its digital life, including who shot it, when it was taken, and what edits have been made to it. And if you know what this sounds like, well, I don't think the article mentions it, but that's an NFT. That's blockchain, yeah. <laughs> yep, exactly. That's precisely what that technology is. Anyways. Adobe has begun a push for this type of verification through its Content Authenticity Initiative, first announced in 2019. As an opt-in tool, content authenticity won't pull back the curtain on deepfakes, but instead gives credibility to non-manipulated media in the same way that users can be verified on social media. According to Parsons, deepfake detection and content providence are complementary authenticators, the former being reactor and the latter a proactive measure. Hmm. The goal is not only to offer more transparency online, but also to encourage audiences to think more critically about the media they're consuming. Fair. Parsons says, At the end of the day, you can trust the photography and the math, but in order to imbue media with the trust that we're looking for, you have to trust a person or an organization. I think there's a greater need than ever to continue to trust those organizations, but also as a consumer and a fact checker, looking at the providence and understanding where it came from and how it might have been manipulated or processed along the way. It would be really ironic if we get to the point where the most trustworthy image is like a loose Polaroid photograph. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like something that's not mm -hmm. digital at all. Yeah. I feel like the reason Polaroid has survived is kind of in part because of that. Like it's irrefutable. This happened, right? It is a <laughs> tangible moment caught that is not reproducible in the same format. And you don't have to show your photos to the guy at the uh, developmental Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's today. They don't know the struggle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, it should be very interesting to see because I actually just got access to Dolly. I've been mm. playing around with Midjourney. A couple nights ago, I found a tool. I believe it's called KUE, but it can allow you to record a voice clip and then it'll play back to you in different voices using the same cadence. <gasps> but even depending on the style of the clip, it'll still lilt a little bit more. Like there's actually an anime voice which will make your voice and even your intonation sound much more expressive and dramatic and more anime-y, but still kind of fit mm -hmm. the default range of your voice oh. and how you use it. It's really crazy. Well, there go our jobs. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But think of the uptick in reverse scammer calls, like scammers who scam scammers. 
Oh, oh, yeah. I can't wait for them to get a hold of this and stick it to the bad guys. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, all of this stuff is going to become widely available, open source. Like, people are already working on open source versions of, like, the OpenGPT stuff of DALI. Like, we're only probably a year away, maybe even less, from anybody being able to pull this stuff down. So it's very interesting to think about the information and authenticity arms race that we may be entering into very soon. And that may end up being one of the core uses for blockchain technology, although it doesn't sound like Adobe is rolling something explicitly, or at least they don't want to say the word NFT. Uh, never mind that that's exactly <laughs> what they're implementing one way or another. Yeah, they're going to have to rename that at this point. It's gotten too too dirty. Like yeah. You can't <laughs> yeah. say NFT. That's, that's, no. Next link. Next, next link. link. All right, this next article is from NPR, and it's called What a Decade of Curiosity Has Taught Us About Life on Mars. Hmm. And I doubt anyone missed the pun, but they are talking about the Curiosity rover, which launched in 2012 and just passed its 10th birthday on the surface of the Red Planet. Curiosity was the fourth robot that we successfully landed on Mars, and it is, though I always forget this, about the size of a car. Like, I don't know about you guys, but there's something about the perspective of the camera angles or maybe the texture of the materials in the photographs. Yeah, it seems small. Yeah, I always have the sense that these rovers are like the size of maybe a dog, but they're not. (laughs) They're actually really big, like, drivable vehicles, assuming we ever get a person up there to drive one. (laughs) But so the question this author is asking basically is, how'd we do? Was the mission a success? And according to Dr. Ashwin Vasavada, the head scientist of the Curiosity team, the answer is a resounding yes. Now, His job is on the line. Of course, he's going to say yes, but he does make a good argument. (laughs) He said that while Curiosity was capable of detecting actual life, which it clearly has not done or we would have heard about it, its main goal was to find out if life was or ever had been possible on the planet. And thanks to Curiosity's data, that has now been definitively confirmed. He said it was not only habitable at one moment in time in Mars's history, but probably habitable for millions or tens of millions of years You can see evidence that rivers once coursed along the surface, that maybe even an ocean existed at one point. Early Mars, three or four billion years ago, was a much more Earth-like place than Mars is today. Hmm, bold words. Yeah, Yeah, that's a big statement. Now, Vasavada believes that even though we haven't really done a ton of excavation, we've nonetheless explored Mars enough at this point to be confident that there are no fossilized dinosaur equivalents or anything like that. So if life ever did take hold, it probably never got beyond the microbial stage. And I, you know, I assume these guys know what they're talking about. I'm not giving up hope for fossils. Like, (laughs) fossils look like rocks. How do you know? That's like we dropped a dune buggy in the Utah desert, drove around a couple of square miles and said there's definitely no fossils in China. Like, you don't know that. (laughs) I don't know. But I'm an optimist, I guess. (laughs) But as for why Mars took a sharp turn into the desert planet it is today, Scientists believe that it was due to the planet's smaller size, which caused it to cool faster than Earth did when it went through the same developmental stage. Once Mm. Mars had cooled, it lost its ability to generate a magnetic field, and that led to the atmosphere being stripped away by radiation in space. This led Mm. to further cooling and ultimately the conditions we see today. But even though it looks like this uniform, dusty, frankly informationless wasteland, Vasavada says the evidence that Curiosity needed was everywhere, including within the exact crater where it landed. Hmm. 
And obviously, you know, these NASA guys are smart. They chose their spot on purpose. But it turns out that the Gale Crater, where Curiosity landed, was formed by an asteroid impact that happened either during or before this wet period in Mars's history because it became a lake with sediments and mud deposited in very recognizable ways both at the bottom of the crater as well as up the sides. Basavada said, We've now driven up over 2,000 vertical feet on the mountain, meaning up the side of the crater, and for the most part, every layer we've looked at formed in a wet environment and had conditions that would have been favorable to life. So it wasn't just a lake. It was a deep lake fed by Mm. rivers and basically looking exactly like you would hope a habitable planet would look, which is all very exciting, but also sort of sad, you know, because then you remember that we're talking about three to four billion years ago. Like we completely missed that window. And at the same time, there's evidence that Venus also was covered in water in that same time frame. Like Venus, Earth and Mars were all right there at that tipping point with liquid water and maybe the first signs of microbial life. But only Earth made it out. And it makes Hmm. you think, you know, on the one hand, like how many other planets out there in the galaxy almost got there but didn't? And also, how Mm -hmm. close was Earth to collapsing right alongside them? You know, Mm -hmm. like I try not to get too existential before lunchtime (laughs) on any given day. But these large scale planetary history ones kind of get to me, you know, Mm -hmm. especially the idea that we missed the window. Like, I think the worst thing in the world would be to find evidence of a massive alien civilization that died out a million years ago and we missed it. Well, we could also look at what happened and try not to exactly replicate it in terms of us totally using up our own resources and doing things like, man, we don't have an atmosphere anymore. (laughs) Yeah. I think probably we're going to be the cautionary tale. Someone's going to find (laughs) us a million years later. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Next link. Next link. All right. We're going to take a detour into some fripperies with JSTOR Daily. We're going to go into lipstick's complex history, Hmm. but specifically laws when it comes to lipstick. Lipstick laws. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because we've had more of them than you may realize. Yeah. I didn't Um, realize we'd had any. So, (laughs) (laughs) well, lipstick is back, y'all. We had some lower sales over the past few years, what with the whole mask and pandemic, but Mm. lipstick usage has always kind of been cyclical. According to legal scholar Sarah E. Schaefer, who wrote a book about this, lipstick cycles include not just ideas about beauty, but it can also affect things like gender, class, health, and even religion. Hmm. It hasn't always been safe, but historically, one was relatively less likely to die from lipstick than from most other cosmetic products. So talk about damning with faint praise. The first known lipstick was created somewhere around 3500 BCE and was worn by Queen Shubad of ancient Ur. And the lip tint contained a mix of white lead and crushed red rocks. (laughs) And it became so popular that people would be buried with cockle shells full of this lip tint. In Egypt, all genders used makeup as part of a daily routine. They would either use a vibrant color coming from red ochre applied alone or mixed with resin or gum for a more lasting finish. Other popular colors also included orange, magenta, and my personal favorite, blue-black. Ooh. And as in Ur, those with the means were buried with at least two pots of lip color. So it was kind of a big deal, even all the way back then. But the vibe was a little different in ancient Greece. 
a backlash against, quote, rampant reliance on lipstick's artificial beauty shifted the social status. So in the Greek empire, lip paint was mainly worn by sex workers. Red was still the color of choice achieved by dyes and wines, as well as, quote, extraordinary ingredients such as sheep sweat, human saliva, and crocodile excrement. (laughs) This status shift also led to the first regulations for the cosmetic, but not for the safety reasons you would think, given the ingredients. It was because of lip paint's, quote, potential deception of men and the undermining (laughs) of class divides. That's what led to the new laws. So in this case, prostitutes could be punished for improperly posing as ladies if they appeared in public without lipstick. (laughs) All right. And the rise of the Roman Empire saw lipstick once again getting a little chic. Men would use it to indicate their social standing and wealthy women would use it for fashion. But All this beauty and status came at a price. Their ingredients, ochre, iron ore, and fucus plants, infused lip paint with a potentially deadly poison. Hmm. Lipstick usage did decline during Western Europe's early Middle Ages. There was a gradual but distinct shift in favor of a rather plainer and possibly slighter, less washed existence. And by the high Middle Ages, religion took lipstick off the must-have list. In England, women who wore makeup were understood to have entered into a pact with the devil because, you know, (laughs) Middle Ages, right? Uh, No, but really the uh, rationale then was, quote, because such alteration of her given face challenged God and his Mm. workmanship. Mm -hmm. So let's fast forward to the 1700s when England imposed even harsher restrictions on makeup. Parliament passed legislation that made anything that altered a woman's appearance, such as wigs, false teeth, and high-heeled shoes among them, they made anything like this grounds for having her marriage annulled or being tried for witchcraft. Slow down, 1700s England. (laughs) And, you know, this was another law that protected men, quote unquote, but had a surprising outcome for women. Because of these laws, fewer women bought lipstick, which at the time often contained mercury-laden vermilion, And this restriction probably saved a lot of women from poisoning. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, you know, of course, anytime you prohibit something, it becomes a little hotter in people's eyes, right? So you Mm -hmm. prohibit lipstick, well, it becomes a dirty little secret. So in the Victorian era, thanks to the Queen's public declaration that makeup was impolite, women resorted to lip biting, rubbing red ribbons on their lips, and trading recipes for lipstick with their friends in underground lip rouge societies, which, (laughs) by the way, I would totally read that spinoff. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, 20th century America. This is when suffragettes start to use lipstick as an emblem of women's emancipation. But safety was still a thing. As Schaefer describes, the common American recipe of crushed insects, beeswax, and olive oil produced lipstick with an unfortunate tendency to turn rancid several hours after application. It wasn't until 1938 when the United States passed the Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act that safety standards were introduced. Regardless, lipstick is a surprisingly political product. From early uses in ancient societies to rebellious years in the 1970s when it was adopted by both sexes of the punk rock music and cultural movement to express sex, violence, and general nonconformity, to current debates over use of animal testing, it still is a bit controversial. But 
lipstick's pattern of going from the heights of popularity to the depths of social unacceptability makes it much more likely than most people probably imagine for lipstick to ever really go out of fashion. Yeah. I mean, as long as people like mouths, they're always going to like lipstick. And I don't think that's <laughs> going to go away. So next link. Next link. This article comes to us from lithub.com. It's titled, A Pig and a Locust Get Into Serious Trouble with the Law, colon, On Justice in Medieval Europe. <laughs> like, like, it Man. sounds like, you know, LitHub, you think, oh, okay, this is going to be fiction. But then all of a sudden, we're talking about justice in medieval Europe. Like, I, okay, this I want to know. This is somebody's clickbaity thesis title, and I am here for it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so... Curiously, trial by jury was voluntary in medieval England. However, if you did refuse to stand trial, the authorities would crush you between two heavy stones until you either acquiesced or died. So, <laughs> But if you ended up here and were found guilty, you would be sure of severe punishment. Murderers were hanged or beheaded. Those convicted of treason were hung, drawn, and quartered. Uh, we should explain that being hanged stipulated until dead, whereas to be hung meant you would be let down before death. As oh. in, I hanged my cat, now it's dead, as opposed to, I hung my cat on the wall, then fed it dinner. Interesting example choices, what? but presumably yeah. they're relevant. I um, did not know that. This is fascinating. I'm yeah. Getting, right, we're taking that tangent and setting it aside, because I'm totally <laughs> looking into that. Yeah. However, being hung was usually far worse than a quick hanging, because the executioner would have a delightful basket of torture lined up for you, starting Ugh. with the next step being drawn. Drawn, unfortunately for the accused, did not mean like one of your French girls. It was a ghastly <laughs> affair, although it was as comparable to naked French girls in levels of titillation for the bloodthirsty and voyeuristic medieval crowds. Yikes. A good old Sunday morning execution was, after all, the primary source of entertainment in most towns. The drawn part of the ordeal involved slicing open the belly to allow the perpetrator's guts to spill out. Sometimes they were pulled or drawn out of the body. Gruesomely, it is believed that the person would often still be conscious during this. The genitals would also be cut off and burnt in full view of the crowds and the victim. Only once the final stage was reached would the poor soul succumb to death, since before quartering, he was usually beheaded. If you're wondering, quartering quite literally meant chopping the torso into four parts, generally with a huge axe. Ooh. The image of a man's limbs being yanked in all four directions by horses, which your rather sick mind may be presenting you with at this very moment. Uh, I don't know why the article had to imply that it's us with the sick minds, sounds like some <laughs> projection, but that yeah. was rarely practiced in England. That huh. was how the French liked to do it. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Up until the mid-13th century, you would be fortunate if you were to be tried by a jury of your peers in the king's court. Throughout the early Middle Ages, this particular court preferred trial by ordeal. The idea was that God favored the innocent, so the defendant would be put through an ordeal in which God would either help him prove his innocence or clarify his guilt. Commonly used methods were trial by cold water, in which the accused would have his hands and feet bound and be thrown into a body of water. If he floated, he was innocent, but if he sank, he was assumed guilty. <laughs> There was ordeal by hot iron or stone, in which the defendant was made to hold a lump of hot iron or plunge his hand into a pot of boiling water to fetch <gasps> a stone. Ugh. If his hand completely healed within three days, then naturally God had intervened, demonstrating his innocence. Ugh. If the scars still showed, he would expect a swift execution. Okay. In England, any man could accuse another man of a crime and request trial by combat. However, Englishmen were not permitted to enter trial by combat against a woman. 
This was not the case in Germany, though. In the Germanic regions, a man could enter into trial by combat against a woman, but only if he was handicapped to make the battle fairer. How? Obviously, by sticking the man in a hole so only his head and arms were above the ground. He could attempt to swing at the woman with a club from his hole while she enjoyed free movement and could literally run circles around the facade. <laughs> Which, like, like, crab bondage battle? Are you serious? Yeah. I, <laughs> I'm stunned. It's like we're put on the Benny Hill and then prepare for death. Why like, would you want to see someone getting quartered to death when you could instead watch round after round of buried clowns? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm just, it's amazing. I love this. Sometimes animals were tried in human courts. Oh. This bizarre practice was carried out both in England and across the rest of Europe. Most of the animals put on trial had been accused of destroying a person's property, most often consuming their crops. Locusts, weevils, rats, slugs, and mice are all documented as having been put on trial in medieval <laughs> memorial courts, but also in the ecclesiastical variety for especially pious locusts. <laughs> if the creatures could be physically transported to the courtroom for the hearing, then they usually were. This might seem utterly insane to our modern minds, but this seemingly nonsensical custom actually served a fundamental purpose in the Middle Ages. All living things were considered to be God's creatures, therefore the extermination of these animals, even if they were crop-devouring miscreants, would be downright sinful. Thus, by first trying them of an immoral act in a court of law, the landowner could mitigate his gift for later exterminating them, or, mm -hmm. as was done in many cases, escorting them out of the city. Uh, <laughs> Oh, Bessie got into Farmer Jackson's core. We're going to exile her and have steak later. What in the heck? Yeah. So this entire excerpt is from a much bigger book by Aaron Lomas called Stick a Flag in It, A Thousand Years of Bizarre History from Britain and Beyond. Uh, <laughs> I skipped some parts as well as some lurid text because it is written in a quite titillating way itself. But if you found this interesting, maybe check that out. Sure. Medieval mind. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. This next article is called Fire Breathing Dragon Clouds, a Wildfire Fueled Phenomenon Explained. Ooh. Yeah. And I'll be honest, I think the word explained undersells it here a bit, because to me, explained means, you know, this thing that everyone knows about and takes for granted. Here's why it happens. But fire breathing dragon clouds is very much a new thing to me. Yeah. Yeah. But it is a thing, unfortunately. And The Guardian is here to explain it for us. So the scientific name for this type of cloud is pyrocumulonimbus, and yeah. they are effectively thunderstorms that are specifically triggered by wildfires on the ground beneath them. And the key ingredient here is moisture. Usually wildfire conditions are by necessity very dry, so you just get a lot of smoke rising up into the air. But when the wildfire is large enough and covers an area with enough humidity, that moisture can get drawn upward with the smoke and the heat and then forms clouds that are ultimately more dangerous than normal thunderstorms in a number of ways. As Derek Malia, a researcher at the University of Utah, described it, the fire is creating its own weather. Ooh. Wow. So why are pyrocumulonimbus clouds so dangerous? Well, to start with, they generate wind, which causes the wildfire to spread more rapidly. They also generate lightning, which can start new fires that spread and even merge with the original fire. In British Columbia, for example, in the summer of 2021, one wildfire-triggered storm generated 700,000 flashes of lightning, 
which is more than the province typically gets in an entire year. Yeesh. What's more, when you have these accelerating forces spreading the wildfire outward, that also means more and more forces spreading the smoke upward. And in recent years, pyrocumulonimbus clouds have been getting taller than ever before, with some reaching as high as 50 to 60,000 feet into the air. This effectively makes them like miniature volcanic explosions, forcing pollutants and aerosols up into the jet stream where they can affect air quality on a continental scale. It's not unheard of, for example, for smoke from California wildfires to be blown all the way to New York City. Wow. And while it's generally understood that pyrocumulonimbus clouds are worsening as a result of climate change because a drier, hotter climate means more wildfires, Scientists are also now starting to confirm that the clouds can also contribute to climate change because smoke contains a lot of carbon, which is, of course, being shot not just up into the atmosphere, but into the stratosphere as these Mm. cloud plumes get taller. And once it's up there, it tends to stay up there for a really long time, traveling the globe and, you know, warming us all like a sooty blanket. So, you know, yeah, fire-breathing dragon clouds. Tell your kids. Or maybe don't if you don't want to traumatize them. <laughs> like, they've explained it, but they haven't really said, like, there's nothing we can do about them. They're all just like, yeah, we've really studied this phenomenon, and it's bad. And <laughs> it's... Well, look, we knew the Fire Nation wasn't going to rest, and that's why we need more that's airbenders. True. Come on, guys. That's true. <laughs> more airbenders are on call. Get them out here. <laughs> All right. Well, that is all we have time for this week. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include the UK's deadliest garden, the sinkhole that swallowed a Mexican farm, and the lost nuclear bombs that no one can find. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.